0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferrari. Barchester Towers, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Thirty five Miss Thorne's Fete Champêtre. The day of the Ullathorne party arrived, and all the world were there or at least so much of the world as had been included in Miss Thorn's invitation. As we have said, the bishop returned home on the previous evening, and on the same evening, and by the same train, came Dr. Gwynne and Mr. Arabin from Oxford. The archdeacon with his brougham was in waiting for the master of Lazarus, so that there was a goodly show of church dignitaries on the platform of the railway. The Stanhope party was finally arranged in the odious manner already described— and Eleanor got into the doctor's carriage full of apprehension and presentiment of further misfortune, whereas Mr. Slope entered the vehicle, elate with triumph. He had received that morning a very civil note from Sir Nicholas Fitzwiggin, not promising much, indeed, but then Mr. Slope knew, or fancied that he knew, that it was not etiquette for government officers to make promises. Though Sir Nicholas promised nothing, he implied a good deal— declared his conviction that Mr. Slope would make an excellent dean, and wished him every kind of success. To be sure, he added that, not being in the cabinet, he was never consulted on such matters, and that even if he spoke on the subject, his voice would go for nothing. But all this Mr. Slope took for the prudent reserve of official life. To complete his anticipated triumphs, another letter was brought to him just as he was about to start to Olathorne. Mr. Slope also enjoyed the idea of handing Mrs. Bold out of Dr. Stanhope's carriage before the multitude at Ullathorne Gate, as much as Eleanor dreaded the same ceremony. He had fully made up his mind to throw himself and his fortune at the widow's feet, and had almost determined to select the present propitious morning for doing so. The signora had of late been less than civil to him. She had indeed admitted his visits, and listened at any rate without anger to his love— But she had tortured him and reviled him, jeered at him and ridiculed him, while she allowed him to call her the most beautiful of living women, to kiss her hand, and to proclaim himself with reiterated oaths her adorer, her slave, and her worshipper. Miss Thorne was in great perturbation, yet in great glory on the morning of the gala day. Mr. Thorne also, though the party was none of his giving, had much heavy work on his hands— but perhaps the most overtasked, the most anxious, and the most effective of all the Ollathorne household was Mr. Plumacy, the steward. This last personage had, in the time of Mr. Thorne's father, when the directory held dominion in France, gone over to Paris with letters in his boot-heel for some of the royal party, and such had been his good luck that he had returned safe. He had then been very young, and was now very old, but the exploit gave him a character for political enterprise and secret discretion, which still availed him as thoroughly as it had done in its freshest gloss. Mr. Plomacy had been steward of Ullathorne for more than fifty years, and a very easy life he'd had of it. Who could require much absolute work from a man who had carried safely at his heel that which, if discovered, would have cost him his head? Consequently, Mr. Plomacy had never worked hard, and of latter years he had never worked at all. He had a taste for timber, and therefore he marked the trees that were to be cut down. He had a taste for gardening, and therefore would allow no shrub to be planted or bed to be made without his express sanction. In these matters he was sometimes driven to run counter to his mistress, but he rarely allowed his mistress to carry the point against him. But on occasions such as the present, Mr. Plomacy came out strong. He had the honour of the family at heart— He thoroughly appreciated the duties of hospitality, and therefore, when gala doings were going on, he always took the management into his own hands, and reigned supreme over master and mistress. To give Mr. Plomacy his due, old as he was, he thoroughly understood such work as he had in hand, and did it well. The order of the day was to be as follows. The quality, as the upper classes in rural districts are designated by the lower with so much true discrimination— were to eat a breakfast and the non-quality were to eat a dinner two marquees had been erected for these two banquets that for the quality on the esoteric or garden side of a certain deep ha-ha and that for the non-quality on the exoteric or paddock side of the same both were of huge dimensions that on the outer side was one may say on an egregious scale but mr plumacy declared that neither would be sufficient To remedy this, an auxiliary banquet was prepared in the dining-room, and a subsidiary board was to be spread, sub-dio, for the accommodation of the lower class of yokels on the Ullathorne property. No one who has not had a hand in the preparation of such an affair can understand the manifold difficulties which Miss Thorne encountered in her project. Had she not been made throughout of the very finest whalebone, riveted with the best Yorkshire steel, she must have sunk under them. Had not Mr. Plumacy felt how much was justly expected from a man who at one time carried the destinies of Europe in his boot, he would have given way, and his mistress, so deserted, must have perished among her poles and canvas. In the first place there was a dreadful line to be drawn. Who were to dispose themselves within the Ha-Ha, and who without— to this the unthinking will give an off-hand answer, as they will to every ponderous question. Oh, the bishop and such-like within the ha-ha, and Farmer Greenacre and such-like without. True, my unthinking friend, but who shall define these such-likes? It is in such definitions that the whole difficulty of society consists. To seat the bishop on an armchair on the lawn, and place Farmer Greenacre at the end of a long table in the paddock is easy enough.' but where will you put mrs lookaloft whose husband though a tenant on the estate hunts in a red coat whose daughters go to a fashionable seminary in barchester who calls her farmhouse rosebank and who has a pianoforte in her drawing-room the missus lookaloft as they call themselves won't sit contented among the bumpkins mrs lookaloft won't squeeze her fine clothes on a bench and talk familiarly about cream and ducklings to good mrs greenacre And yet Mrs. Lookaloft is no fit companion, and never has been the associate of the Thorns and the Grantleys. And if Mrs. Lookaloft be admitted within the sanctum of fashionable life, if she be allowed with her three daughters to leap the Ha-Ha, why not the wives and daughters of other families also? Mrs. Greenacre is at present well contented with the paddock, but she might cease to be so if she saw Mrs. Lookaloft on the lawn. And thus poor Miss Thorn had a hard time of it. And how was she to divide her guests between the Marquis and the parlour? She had a countess coming, an Honourable John and an Honourable George, and a whole bevy of ladies Amelia, Rosina, Margareta, etc. She had a leash of baronets with their baronets, and, as we all know, she had a bishop. If she put them on the lawn, no one would go into the parlour. If she put them into the parlour, no one would go into the tent. She thought of keeping the old people in the house and leaving the lawn to the lovers, she might as well have seated herself at once in a hornet's nest. Mr. Plumacy knew better than this. "'Bless your soul, ma'am,' said he, "'there won't be no old ladies, not one, barring yourself, and old Mrs. Clannantram.'" Personally Miss Thorne accepted this distinction in her favour as a compliment to her good sense, but nevertheless she had no desire to be closeted on the coming occasion with Mrs. Clantitram. She gave up all idea of any arbitrary division of her guests, and determined, if possible, to put the bishop on the lawn and the countess in the house, to sprinkle the baronets, and thus divide the attractions. What to do with the lookaloffs, even Mr. Plumacy could not decide. They must take their chance. They had been specially told in the invitation that all the tenants had been invited, and they might probably have the good sense to stay away if they objected to mix with the rest of the tenantry. Then Mr. Plumacy declared his apprehension that the Honorable Johns and Honorable Georges would come in a sort of amphibious costume—half morning, half evening, satin neck-handkerchiefs, frock-coats, primrose gloves, and polished boots—and that, being so dressed, they would decline riding at the Quintain, or taking part in any of the athletic games which Miss Thorne had prepared with so much fond care. If the Lord Johns and Lord Georges didn't ride at the Quintain, Miss Thorne might be sure that nobody else would." But she said, in a dolorous voice, all but overcome by her cares, it was specially signified that there were to be sports, and so there will be, of course, said Mr. plumacy They'll all be sportin with the young ladies in the laurel walks. them's the sports they care most about nowadays. If you gets the young men at the quintain, you'll have all the young women in the pouts. Can't they look on as their great-grandmothers did before them, said Miss Thorne. It seems to me. "'that the ladies ain't contented with looking nowadays. "'Whatever the men do, they'll do. "'If you'll have side-saddles on the nags, "'and let them go at the Quintain, too, "'it'll answer capital, no doubt.' "'Miss Thorne made no reply. "'She felt that she had no good ground "'on which to defend her sex of the present generation "'from the sarcasm of Mr. Plumacy. "'She had once declared, in one of her warmer moments, "'that nowadays the gentlemen were all women, "'and the ladies all men.' She could not alter the debased character of the age. But such being the case, why should she take on herself to cater for the amusement of people of such degraded tastes? This question she asked herself more than once, and she could only answer herself with a sigh. There was her own brother, Wilfrid, on whose shoulders rested all the ancient honours of the Ullathorn house. It was very doubtful whether even he would consent to go at the Quintain, as Mr. Plumacy not injudiciously expressed it. And now the morning arrived. The Olathorne household was early on the move. Cooks were cooking in the kitchen long before daylight, and men were dragging out tables and hammering red bays onto benches at the earliest dawn. With what dread eagerness did Miss Thorne look out at the weather as soon as the parting veil of night permitted her to look out at all? In this respect, at any rate, there was nothing to grieve her. The glass had been rising for the last three days, and morning broke with that dull, chill, steady gray haze which, in autumn, generally presages a clear and dry day. By seven she was dressed and down. Miss Thorne knew nothing of the modern luxury of desabines. She would as soon have thought of appearing before her brother without her stockings as without her stays, and Miss Thorne's stays were no trifle. And yet there was nothing for her to do when down— She fidgeted out to the lawn and then back into the kitchen. She put on her high-heeled clogs and fidgeted out into the paddock. Then she went into the small home park where the quintain was erected. The pole and crossbar and swivel and target and bag of flour were all complete. She got up on a carpenter's bench and touched the target with her hand. It went round with beautiful ease. The swivel had been oiled to perfection. She almost wished to take old Plumacy at his word to get on a side-saddle and have a tilt at it herself. What must a young man be, thought she, who could prefer maundering among laurel-trees with a wishy-washy schoolgirl to such fun as this? Well, said she aloud to herself, one man can take a horse to water, but a thousand can't make him drink. There it is. If they haven't the spirit to enjoy it, the fault shan't be mine." And so she returned to the house. At a little after eight her brother came down, and they had a sort of scrap breakfast in his study. The tea was made without the customary urn, and they dispensed with the usual rolls and toast. Eggs also were missing, for every egg in the parish had been whipped into custards, baked into pies, or boiled into lobster salad. The allowance of fresh butter was short, and Mr. Thorne was obliged to eat the leg of a fowl without having it deviled in the manner he loved. "'I have been looking at the Quintain, Wilfred,' said she, "'and it appears to be quite right.' "'Oh, ah, yes,' said he. "'It seemed to be so yesterday when I saw it.' Mr. Thorne was beginning to be rather bored by his sister's love of sports, and had especially no affection for this Quintain post. "'I wish you'd just try it after breakfast,' said she. "'You could have the saddle put on Mark Antony, and the pole is there all handy. You can take the flour-bag off, you know, if you think Mark Antony won't be quick enough.' added Miss Thorne, seeing that her brother's countenance was not indicative of complete accordance with her little proposition. Now, Mark Antony was a valuable old hunter, excellently suited to Mr. Thorne's usual requirements, steady indeed at his fences, but extremely sure, very good in deep ground and safe on the roads. But he had never yet been ridden at a quintain, and Mr. Thorne was not inclined to put him to the trial, either with or without the bag of flour." He hummed and hawed, and finally declared that he was afraid Mark Antony would shy. "'Then try the cob,' said the indefatigable Miss Thorn. "'He's in physic,' said Wilfred. "'There's the bells above, Colt,' said his sister. "'I know he's in the stable, because I saw Peter exercising him just now.' "'My dear Monica, he's so wild that it's as much as I can do to manage him at all. He'd destroy himself and me too if I attempted to ride him at such a rattle-trap as that.' "'A rattle-trap! "'The Quintain that she had put up with so much anxious care, "'the game that she had prepared for the amusement "'of the stalwart yeomen of the country, "'the sport that had been honoured by the affection "'of so many of their ancestors. "'It cut her to the heart to hear it so denominated "'by her own brother. "'There were but the two of them left together in the world, "'and it had ever been one of the rules "'by which Miss Thorne had regulated her conduct through life "'to say nothing that could provoke her brother.' she had often had to suffer from his indifference to time-honoured British customs, but she had always suffered in silence. It was part of her creed that the head of the family should never be upbraided in his own house, and Miss Thorne had lived up to her creed. Now, however, she was greatly tried. The colour mounted to her ancient cheek, and the fire blazed in her still bright eyes, but yet she said nothing. She resolved that, at any rate, to him, nothing more should be said about the Quintain that day— she sipped her tea in silent sorrow and thought with painful regret of the glorious days when her great ancestor ilfred had successfully held ullathorne against a norman invader there was no such spirit now left in her family except that small useless spark which burnt in her own bosom and she herself, was she not at this moment intent on entertaining a descendant of those very Normans, a vain, proud countess with a Frenchified name, who would only think that she graced Olathorne too highly by entering its portals? Was it likely that an Honourable John, the son of an Earl de Curcy, should ride at a Quintain in company with Saxon yeomen? And why should she expect her brother to do that which her brother's guests would decline to do? Some dim, faint idea of the impracticability of her own views flitted across her brain. Perhaps it was necessary that races doomed to live on the same soil should give way to each other, and adopt each other's pursuits. Perhaps it was impossible that, after more than five centuries of close intercourse, Normans should remain Normans, and Saxons Saxons. Perhaps, after all, her neighbors were wiser than herself." Such ideas did occasionally present themselves to Miss Thorn's mind, and make her sad enough, but it never occurred to her that her favourite quintain was but a modern copy of a Norman knight's amusement, an adaptation of the noble tourney to the tastes and habits of the Saxon yeoman. Of this she was ignorant, and it would have been cruelty to instruct her. When Mr. Thorn saw the tear in her eye, he repented himself of his contemptuous expression— By him it was also recognized as a binding law that every whim of his sister was to be respected. He was not perhaps so firm in his observances to her as she was in hers to him, but his intentions were equally good, and whenever he found that he had forgotten them, it was a matter of grief to him. "'My dear Monica,' said he, "'I beg your pardon. I don't in the least mean to speak ill of the game. When I called it a rattle-trap I merely meant that it was so for a man of my age. "'You know you always forget that I ain't a young man.' "'I am quite sure you are not an old man, Wilfred,' said she, "'accepting the apology in her heart, "'and smiling at him with the tears still on her cheek. "'If I was five-and-twenty or thirty,' continued he, "'I should like nothing better than riding at the Quintain all day.' "'But you are not too old to hunt or to shoot,' said she. "'If you can jump over a ditch or a hedge, "'I am sure you could turn the Quintain round.' "'But when I ride over the hedges, my dear—and it isn't very often I do that—but when I do ride over the hedges, there isn't any bag of flour coming after me. Think how I'd look taking the Countess out to breakfast with the back of my head all covered with meal!' Miss Thorne said nothing further. She didn't like the allusion to the Countess. She couldn't be satisfied with the reflection that the sports at Ulthorne should be interfered with by the personal attentions necessary for Lady de Courcy. But she saw that it was useless for her to push the matter further. It was conceded that Mr. Thorne was to be spared the Quintain, and Miss Thorne determined to trust wholly to a youthful knight of hers, an immense favourite, who, as she often declared, was a pattern to the young men of the age and an excellent sample of an English yeoman. This was Farmer Greenacre's eldest son, who, to tell the truth, had from his earliest years taken the exact measure of Miss Thorne's foot, in his boyhood he had never failed to obtain from her apples pocket-money and forgiveness for his numerous trespasses and now in his early manhood he got privileges and immunities which were equally valuable he was allowed a day or two's shooting in september he schooled the squire's horses got slips of trees out of the orchard and roots of flowers out of the garden and had the fishing of the little river altogether in his own hands he had undertaken to come mounted on a nag of his father's and show the way at the quintain post Whatever young Greenacre did, the others would do after him. The juvenile lookalofts might stand aloof, but the rest of the youth of Ullathorne would be sure to venture if Harry Greenacre showed the way. And so Miss Thorne made up her mind to dispense with the noble Johns and Georges, and trust, as her ancestors had done before her, to the thews and sinews of native Olathorne growth. At about nine the lower orders began to congregate in the paddock and park under the surveillance of mr plomacy and the head gardener and head groom who were sworn in as his deputies and were to assist him in keeping the peace and promoting the sports many of the younger inhabitants of the neighbourhood thinking that they could not have too much of a good thing had come at a very early hour and the road between the house and the church had been thronged for some time before the gates were open and then another difficulty of huge dimensions arose a difficulty which mr plumacy had indeed foreseen and for which he was in some sort provided some of those who wished to share miss thorne's hospitality were not so particular as they should have been as to the preliminary ceremony of an invitation They doubtless conceived that they had been overlooked by accident, and instead of taking this in dudgeon, as their betters would have done, they good-naturedly put up with the slight, and showed that they did so by presenting themselves at the gate in their Sunday best. Mr. Plumacy, however, well knew who were welcome and who were not. To some, even though uninvited, he allowed ingress. "'Don't be too particular, Plumacy,' his mistress had said, "'especially with the children. If they live anywhere near, let them in.' acting on this hint mr plumacy did let in many an eager urchin and a few tidily dressed girls with their swains who in no way belonged to the property but to the denizens of the city he was inexorable many a barchester apprentice made his appearance there that day and urged with piteous supplication that he had been working all the week in making saddles and boots for the use of ullathorn in compounding doses for the horses or cutting up carcasses for the kitchen no such claim was allowed mr Plumacy knew nothing about the city apprentices; he was to admit the tenants and labourers on the estate; Miss Thorn wasn't going to take in the whole city of Barchester, and so on. Nevertheless, before the day was half over, all this was found to be useless. Almost anybody who chose to come made his way into the park, and the care of the guardians was transferred to the tables on which the banquet was spread. Even here there was many an unauthorized claimant for a place, of whom it was possible to get quit without more commotion than the place and food were worth. End of chapter thirty five